Hello and welcome to another episode of the View From The Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In today's conversation, I caught up with Dan Townley, Head of Science at Eton College near Windsor. Eton is probably the most well-known independent school in the country, if not the world. In this episode, we cover a smorgasbord of educational topics that included, but were not limited to, teaching reflections from the COVID-19 pandemic and the challenges of getting students to actively engage with teacher feedback in the science classroom. I also heard about the recent work they've been doing in supporting the formation of a collection of new sixth form colleges in areas where provision is currently struggling to meet demand. This new project is in collaboration with the Star Academy's Multi-Academy Trust and UCL's Centre for Education Policy for Equalising Opportunities. Not only that, but of course I find out the crucial question, do they really serve Eton Mess in the school dining hall? So, without further ado, it's time to finish the intro and hear Dan Townley's View from the Lab. Hi Dan, welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Hi Andy, good to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. That's okay. We're kind of, for context of people listening to this, uh, when this goes out, we are having a conversation at the end of the 2021-2022 academic year in the, just the, the, the tail end of the summer term. So it's great that I can catch up with Dan as he's winding down for the year. What I wanted to start with, Dan, is the question I ask all guests that come on, or pretty much all the guests that come on the, the, the podcast, is that I'm interested to know about my guests' um, thoughts about science and what was it that got them into science in the first place? Was it a natural inclination or interest? Was it a family member that inspired them? Or was it perhaps even, shock horror, a teacher at school that really kind of pushed them forward towards the science journey? So for you, Dan, what was it about science that really intrigued you as a younger person? Yeah, nice question, Andy. I suppose my inspiration for science really started when I was was a young kid and I was a, a curious little soul I would describe myself as and my mother will retell stories of the young boy who would get hold of something and then take it apart to try and work out uh, how it worked and that would be a bit of a recurring theme every time we get a new toy it would end up in pieces so I think that ended up with her only buying me Lego from that point forward and it was really a, 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 a an interest in solving puzzles, solving problems that really got me interested in science and the scientific method. Uh, and I, from that point forward, I've always just wanted to understand how things work. Um, my father was a chemist and not a teacher, but had a chemistry degree. So I suppose I was skewed a little bit by that. And that's what I ended up reading at university. So, yeah. I see. So did you have a kind of, obviously you had to make a choice at some point to kind of say, well, I'm going to do the chemistry route. But in terms of the other sciences, do you have a bit of love for them as well? Or are you kind of um, chemistry, 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 and that's your, that's your real passion? Yeah, so chemistry is my, is my degree subject and is the main subject I teach, but I do teach a little bit of physics. And I've also been dabbling a little bit recently in sort of year nine computer science. I mean, as, as head of science, I have to try and remain as neutral as possible. But I would say my chemistry is my main passion, but I'm interested in all science. I think as the in 2022, science is, is evolving and it's actually the interdisciplinary areas that are where the sort of new stuff is coming out. If you think about classical science, one could argue that classical science is complete, but it's actually more about the application and, and exploring our regions within that that's that's actually where the, the new stuff going forward is, is happening. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned computer science because I think that um, obviously it's got science in the title, so we think obviously it's going to have more of a scientific aspect. It's moved away from 
um, the kind of more software use of, you know, IT systems, you know, using your MS Word or what have you. Um, how is that organised in your school? So is computer science almost amalgamated into the science department or is it a separate entity? Is it still in the IT department? Um, or have you just been kind of, has it dropped into your into your basket as it were and, you know, you, you've volunteered to teach that? Because I guess it's got its own challenges because a lot of people, it's quite hard to get computer science teachers. Yeah, it is. I mean, the subject has massively evolved since, I mean, I think you've alluded to there. My memories from when I was at school, IT lessons were very much learning how to write emails and how to use Excel, whereas the computer science I, I teach the boys at, at our school is about coding and, and writing programs and understanding how a computer works rather than understanding how to use a computer. We have a separate computer science department. They don't currently fall under the remit of science, of, of my role as, as head of science, but there is a head of computer science. I think moving forward, that's something that we would that would be an interesting avenue to take would be to integrate computer science with part of the science faculty. The, it does cause problems in terms of logistics, but we, we teach all year nines a sort of introductory course in computer science, and then they have the option to carry it forward for GCSE. And we also offer A-level computer science. So everybody in year nine gets a flavour of what the subject will entail. And it's a subject that's massive, become massively popular and we're finding that a lot of boys, a lot of the science boys who perhaps would have done maths, physics and chemistry A-level are now doing maths, physics and computer science per se, because they're seeing lots of tangible outcomes from the nature of that subject. They know that there's careers to be had and money to be made in, in the IT world. And, and that's a real enabling subject. So I think it's something that we're going to see an enormous growth, continued enormous growth over the next couple of years. And it's an exciting time. I see. So um, thinking about your your own kind of career journey, thinking about obviously chemistry is an extremely challenging subject. It's intriguing. Um, and I know you went to a, a well-regarded university. Um, some people might have heard of it. It was Oxford, Oxford University. Um, so it's a, it's a really, you know, high, high-end university. And I guess you had some choices at the end of your course. And, um, you know, my impression is that if you if you've if you've got a very prestigious degree from a prestigious place that you know there's options across the the sphere if you like of different types of careers and you and you decided to give teaching a go what made you decide that was something you really wanted to either try or um, you had a real passion for it was it something you always knew knew that you definitely wanted to to go down that route or was it did it did you kind of um, land in it kind of by a circuitous route how 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 did that journey begin for you. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I've been thinking about this one since we since we drafted the questions together for the for the podcast, and I had a bit of an up and down journey with chemistry over the course of my degree. You sort of leave school and you go off to university to study a subject, and you get the excitement of starting university, making make, making new friends, meeting new people, learning some really you know some challenging chemistry. I actually there are parts of me that think. If I could go and do my degree as a 25-year-old, I would actually have been far better at chemistry because you sort of have that much more maturity. So I'd say during the middle of my degree, I almost, I don't want to say fell out of love, but the subject became a bit of a means to an end in terms of I was learning a lot of material to answer questions to pass the finals and so on and so forth. And it was during my final year at university when we were doing a research-based project and I was looking at the different options in terms of whether to, to remain at university and, and study for a higher degree to complete a PhD, 
or whether to try and go into the field of work. And one thing that I really wanted to do was to be able to use my degree. I'd really fallen back in love with the, with the subject and I wanted to go into a career that was going to cause me to use or require me to use my degree and my knowledge in a day-to-day, uh, in my day-to-day working pattern. And I felt that becoming a chemistry teacher was one of the very few options where a, a chemist can directly use everything they've learnt during their degree uh, and and share that knowledge. And that's what I really loved. And I actually, in my final year at university, I had to go doing some tutoring uh, through a through a charity scheme, was helping out some young students who were struggling with their maths and their science. And it, re- it really bit me, the the teaching bug, as it were. I took real reward and satisfaction from, you know, seeing people improve and helping them and, and imparting knowledge. And it went from there, really. And then I applied for a job at a school and was fortunate enough to be offered the post. And that was 12 years ago. And, and the rest, I suppose, is history. Apologies for this audio interruption, but I just wanted to mention a free online event sponsored by Pearson LXL this autumn half term. It's open to all science teachers and is on Monday the 3rd of October 2022. We have one of our free GCSE Science Networks coming up. This time it's presented by Twitter icon Adam Boxer, who will be running a session on how to make effective use of explanations in the science classroom. Adam will be covering on what makes a poor explanation, the lost art of a good explanation, and two specific strategies that you can use to improve any explanation. This event can count towards your own professional development and you'll receive an e-certificate for joining us on the day. So, how do you book? You need to type in pdacademy.pearson.com, that's the letter P, then the letter D, then academy.pearson.com, and then put Boxer in the search bar and the event will come up. Remember, it's on Monday the 3rd of October, 4 to 5.30pm in the afternoon. We'd love to see you there, and I remember that it doesn't matter which exam board you're with, everyone is welcome. Hope to see you there. And you've kind of taught in, I'd say quite prestigious, I don't know if it's the right word, prestigious schools or well-known schools, in definitely in the kind of the independent sector. Is that Was that a particular kind of um, plan of yours or just the, the, the jobs that came up seemed quite attractive at the time and you thought that's the, that's the logical next step for me? How did you, how did you go about trying to decide where to go next in your kind of t- teaching career? Did you have any kind of guidance or was it a bit of, you know, did you take a few risks or, along the way? How did, you, how did you think about making those kind of decisions? Yeah, that's, I would suppose, I mean, in, in terms of in terms of risk, it was actually Anthony Selden who took a risk employing me back 12 years ago in terms of employing a graduate straight from university without any formal teaching qualification. The first lesson I ever taught was the lesson for my interview. And, and I was fortunate enough to be to be offered the job. And I think it really stemmed from there in terms of, and I hate to admit it, but become a little bit institutionalized. I I like the pattern that, that a boarding school offers in terms of it's a very structured routine. Uh, dinner is at six and I get uh, I get stressed at home if my wife, is, <laughs> if we're not having dinner at, at six o'clock, it's a bit of a habit. But, and, and that sort of, it sort of stemmed from there. And then I very much enjoyed the boarding school environment. And the other thing I have to remember is that the, in the independent sector, Amazingly, one doesn't require a teaching qualification before you're able to be let loose in front of the children. And it was actually my first school that sponsored me through doing the, the University of Buckingham PGCE, which was a really good way about going about it, in my opinion. I learned the, the craft of the classroom in the classroom and then caught up with the theory afterwards. I think I would have 
I don't want to say not enjoyed, but I think it would have, I would have found doing a traditional PGCE uh, quite a lot more hard work because you spend a lot of time learning the theory before you're let loose in the classroom. Whereas in my career, I was let loose from day one and basically picked up a textbook and said, where do we start? Uh, I look back at some of those first lessons, I think, wow, they must have been terrible, but learned a lot along the way. So I bet you can remember, what was the, what was the lesson you taught when you went to, uh, I guess, Wellington College you're talking about with Anthony Selden, is that correct? Yeah, it is, yeah. Can you remember what lesson you chose or did they choose it for you? And and can you remember what you did in that lesson? Or... Yeah, it's just, I, I, I can actually, I was, it would have been, a because at Wellington they taught the International Baccalaureate and as alongside A-levels and I would taught a lesson on, it was a really dry topic. I think they gave me a lesson on an introduction to infrared spectroscopy. Okay. So, <laughs> a nice and easy one. Yeah, that basically resulted with me uh, putting together a few slides, I think from memory, building a few models, and then doing some slightly what I'd refer to as awkward dad dancing at the front of the classroom as I was trying to demonstrate different vibrational modes of molecules with symmetric and asymmetric stretches. And it's actually something that I still do to this day. I still crack the same joke uh, 12 years later. But yeah, so that's where it all started. So as soon as you talk about kind of almost like uh, the structure of, um, of of kind of a boarding school life, I guess, and there's lots of, I guess, different differing opinions about boarding schools and um, whether they're per se good or, or, or bad. I know it's not, you know, you can't you know, paint a brush in terms of being so kind of reductive about that. But what are your thoughts generally about the kind of um, boarding school life, I guess? Is there, what, how do you feel it's maybe changed over the years or what are the advantages you think or you see in your own teaching life um, that, you know, boarding school can bring to students? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is it's, it's not for everybody. Yeah. In terms of boarding school life is not suited for every single student, but it's an immersive experience. And that's what one has to remember. So the terms are slightly shorter. Yeah. But we, we do work Saturdays. So whenever I'm interviewing anybody, I have to say to them, you do know that we, we work on Saturdays and you've expected to work on Sundays as well at certain times. But I would say the advantages we have for an educational point of view is we have a captive audience and the students are here with us constantly so if we want to run an extension class or or do some additional work beyond the scope of the the specification we don't have to worry about trying to squeeze that in either at the start or the end of a school day and it's disruptive to people's sort of their their parents picking them up from school because they're here if i want to go and do some chemistry experiments at eight o'clock in the evening with some students in the lab we can Mm. And, and i think that's the real one of the real benefits alongside that outside of the realm of academia, you've got the enormous co-curricular slash extracurricular option whereby boys and students in these schools are able to partake in sports. We have evening lectures. We have a huge amount of community engagement, the cadet force, which we were talking about before we went on air, all these sorts of things that huge amount of opportunities uh, for students to engage in. I would say that I'd caveat that by saying is that boarding school is what you make of it as a student. And there are some students that get through doing very little and and that's a shame. And it's those who throw themselves into everything that really get the most from the whole experience. And 
obviously Eton is famously um, all bo- an all boys school, and there's there's very few of those left in you know across the UK. There's there's fewer and fewer single sex schools, and you've taught obviously you've taught in mixed schools. You've taught in obviously taught in Eton with single sex school. Is there anything you particularly notice about any differences of of single sex? Sorry, boy, uh, boys schools in this case. Um, uh, in terms of from a teacher perspective, does it does it make a great deal of difference? Does it make no difference? Is there any kind of um, kind of viewpoint you have on on the kind of the setup the setup of the school? Yeah, it's so. This is my first experience of working in an all boys school. I went to a co-educational school, and then the other two schools I've worked at were fully co-educational. So it, it does have its differences. I would say the one of the benefits that, as far as I can see, of just having boys is that. In this school, it definitely feels there's much more of a feeling of it's 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 cool to work hard, and in in other schools where I've worked, sometimes there's a bit of a culture amongst the students of uh, it's it's better to look cool than to work hard. Whereas in this school, it's very much it's to work hard is to look cool, and and there's a there's a natural competitive element between the students. Um, that said, I think there's the enormous benefits of, of co-educational schools because, of course, the real world and, and real life is, is fully co-educational. So by being a boys only school, we're doing a little bit. We're doing the boys a little bit of a disservice in terms of we're not giving them an experience of, to a certain extent, of what the real world is like. But um, from an educational point of view, it, it does. there are certain things that it's a lot more clear cut when you're just working with boys or just working with girls. I think you'd get a very similar answer if you asked somebody who worked in an all girls school in terms of it's certain things are a lot more simple and straightforward. And they just sort of some of the complications you have with students falling out and so on and so forth. You, we just don't get so many that. of them. <laughs> yeah, I see. Um, and um, I imagine because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm you know, obviously aware of Eton as being a quite a big cultural institution in the in, and you know, it's got you know worldwide. It's known. Um, are there any particular kind of traditions or things that people would know about about Eton um, in terms of the way their school year runs, or compared to even other independent schools, or other things during the year that um, are kind of events that people may not have heard of, whether they be you know dramatic events or as in you know shows or whatever it might be. Is there anything that happens in Eton you've noticed doesn't happen perhaps elsewhere, or is it or is it you know similar as, as similar to other schools? Yeah, it's. Um... It's it's a strange it's an interesting place and I think the thing I'd say about about Eton as a as a school is once you see through the silly uniform and, <laughs> and once you see through the fact that the teachers are walking around wearing bow ties and waistcoats yeah actually they're all normal people and the boys as well they're once you underneath the uniform they're they're normal human beings mm. I mean we do have some quirks and and some odd traditions that certain things you sort of think, wow, I would never have understood that. I mean, I give you a small one, for example, we call terms, we don't call them terms, we call them halves. And at a school that has three terms, we still call them, there are three halves. Okay. That's always a bit of a good joke (laughs) when you try and explain to somebody when's half term and you go, well, which half of the half is that? Uh, It all gets a bit silly. And that's a bit of a hangover from when when the school was founded. There were only two terms. And the only time during the year that the boys boys were allowed to go home at Christmas, but then when they came back after Christmas, they'd be in board from Christmas all the way through until the summer. I think they'd get Easter Sunday off. So that's why the year was divided into two halves, but that's now a, a legacy term that's that's stuck around. 
but yeah, I mean, beyond that, there are some traditions and some slightly odd events. We have an event called the 4th of June, which is never held on the 4th of June. But it's just <laughs> of our speech day. And that's an opportunity for, for the parents to come in and the boys and there's exhibitions around the school. We have another a, a, quite a strange tradition called the procession of boats, which is where all of the rowing crews row past all the guests and they have to stand up with their blades up in the air and they have to all stand up in the boat and hope it doesn't tip over, which is always a good laugh. But yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of tradition, um, but it's an exciting place and it's surprisingly modern. People would think, oh, it must be stuck in the past. I would actually say of all the schools I've worked in, this is the sort of, in terms of the educational scene, this is the most advanced and forward thinking school um, that I've actually worked in. Now, it's kind of linked to that. I was going to want you to tell me about the, the Tony Little Centre, because that's more of a, it's broad, it's away from kind of science teaching per, uh, per se. It's more of a, well, can you tell us about the Tony Little Centre and what, what that is in Eton and what impact that possibly has on the kind of educational landscape? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so the, the Tony Little Centre is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a centre for educational research. And actually, when one delves into the literature in terms of, research in education there's not a huge amount so the idea of the Tony Little Centre is actually to do some practice-based research uh, one piece that they've been looking at quite recently and I think this will ring ring bells with a number of teachers out there is there's very little evidence or at least there's not evidence in the research there's not much research been done into the value and benefits of marking student work for example now, that doesn't by any measure mean that marking students' work is not valuable. It's a phenomenally important part of the learning process. But there's actually very little research into what is an, what are effective methods for marking work. What are the best ways of giving feedback to students? So a big project that the Tony Little Centre are currently engaged in is actually doing some research and gathering thoughts from teachers around the country and getting feedback from students to actually do some research in the field of of education so rather than when people make offhand comments rather than they're just being anecdotes about their own experiences within the schoolroom within the classroom they're actually evidence-based comments that have actually got some backing so so that's where the Tony Little Centre is looking and um, it's also a, a good space it's an open space where students can go and work and it also houses our uh, learning support department so those students who have who need additional support with their handwriting, with their reading, writing skills and so on and so forth. So, so it's a really, it's a, it's a hive of activity actually. Uh, and it's a really ex exciting place to go and visit. Yeah, it was interesting you're talking about marking and uh, I was supposed to think when I was teaching that, um, and definitely towards um, the last few years I was in the classroom, is that I was always, I always held back giving, uh, say they did a mock exam or something, I'd, um, never giving them, the, never giving them the mark because I think the difficulty of students looking at marking is that the human human um, tendency, I think, is just look for the mark. Oh, how did I do in terms of my perception of myself or perhaps the class? And then 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 forget about the mistakes in a sense, whereas actually it's very hard or you've got to find ways of trying to engage students with um, the actual thoughtful work, work about why you got that answer wrong or why it wasn't quite right before, in a sense, the mark is revealed, because it's very difficult to, I think your brain almost switches off when you see the mark and you don't consciously think oh, why did I get that mark um any thoughts on that in terms of um you know maybe a technique yeah I, I I couldn't agree more with you in terms of if you hand back a piece of work 
to a student that just has a score out of 20 or a score out of 100, from my experience, all they do is look at the person sat next to them. And if they've done better, they congratulate themselves. And if they've done worse, they then go, oh, well, and there's not much learning that's gained from from that necessary feedback process. So, I mean, one thing I have done in the past is because you can cover things up. We use a lot of the iPad and OneNote to take notes and things like that. Yeah, you can actually mark all of the work and give people feedback without giving them any scores, and then you can release the scores separately. I see. One thing I've also done to try and to force students to engage with the feedback on the work is rather than writing notes on the work, is to record an audio commentary and insert that into the work, and then they have to listen to the audio commentary to get the feedback and the comments. They don't actually need to know the scores but they need to engage with with what's written on the paper because I, I can, couldn't agree more with you in terms of if a student gets 80 out of 90, they go, well, I only got 10 things wrong. So as soon as they've worked out what they got wrong, they then completely disengage. And I always say to my students, just because you've got the marks doesn't mean you wrote the best answer. And when we're preparing students for exams, I talk a little a little bit about exam efficiency. Now, that's not to sort of suggest that they should do less work but we try and answer exam questions with as few words as possible to get the right points across because i found that some students they fall into a trap of the right contradictions and you're a chemist you'll know exactly what it's like when students are describing chemical bonding for example they'll write a perfect answer about ionic bonding and then they'll mention molecules and all of a sudden you've got a, a contradiction or a chemical error and they score zero marks so actually less is more in a certain in certain situations. It's an ongoing battle. I haven't got a perfect answer to it in terms of how do you get students to engage with marked work. Or the only thing I could say is that the thing I found works the best is if you can turn work around quickly. So students are always impressed if they sit a test on a Monday and on Tuesday morning, you give them back the scores and the results because it's fresh in their mind. If If they sit a test and they don't get them back for three weeks, it's lost its impact. And then they look at the scores and go, oh, well, I've moved on from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I like your idea about um, audio commentary. I think that was great. One teacher I used to work with, um, this is probably before iPads, et cetera, even this is a while, while back now, but 10 plus years, but he used to record, he was very innovative. And he had, um, he recorded things on his um, uh, Android phone and made little QR codes when QR codes had just become a thing and um, st- stick them into into books uh, for, um, he was thinking he was a biology teacher, but that was that was I thought that was a great time saver, but also more effective in terms of um, giving that feedback. But as you say, if it's within you know a tablet or what have you, and it's easy to give the feedback, I think that be it must be a great um, great advantage to the to the, the pupils to understand exactly where they went wrong, and almost in a sense, if the feedback is easier for the teacher to give, uh, and they can give it in an effective way. Um, obviously, the student will, will, will benefit from that, and I guess um, you know those things are being refined, you know, as the years go on. I assume. Yeah, exactly, and I think that the the use of the technology does mean that teachers can. I want to put this as put this carefully, but a lot of students make the same mistakes. Yes. Now, yeah. one thing that's really exhausting as a teacher when you're marking work on paper is writing the same comment 15 times. Yeah. But the joys of the iPad mean that if the students have made the same mistake, you can actually copy the same comments and there's still valuable bits of feedback, but they end up on individual pieces of work. I will share an anecdote here that might make people chuckle. I remember I set some homework for one of my students and one of the questions was, 
to draw out a standard hydrogen cell, uh, standard, uh, standard hydrogen electrode. And a very industrious student managed to copy and paste the diagram that I'd drawn in the class notes and tried to hand it in as, as part <laughs> of their homework. And I remember having a laugh at his expense saying, well, if I handed in my notes in your handwriting, I'd be in trouble. So please don't hand in my notes as part of your homework. But um, yeah. yeah, it was good fun. I know. This made me think about, um, as you say, that that quick turnaround time. And again, I think the longer you teach, you realise actually sometimes a smaller assessment gives you just as much information as like, so say eight, eight, eight or nine marks might give you exactly the same information as if you gave them a 30 mark test sometimes. Often looked at um, exam papers when I marked them. I looked for the first couple of questions and uh, I didn't do any statistical analysis on this, but I looked at it and thought, well, if this person basically got 50% for the first two questions, it ends up being about 50% over the whole, whole paper. Sometimes those small assessments, you can get so much out of, um, uh, obviously for chemistry, you can split it up a little bit and you know got smaller and, and bigger questions, but um, that regularity of assessment is important more than like the quantity of it, because I think you get better feedback and actually, um, you know, they get better feedback because you're not spending so much time say going through 30 marks when actually nine or 10 marks might have been enough to give a, have a good handle of where they are at that point yeah definitely um in the in the run-up to we do this a lot with gcse in particular in the run-up to gcse exams once a week i will set the students a, a 15 minute factual recall test just to ensure that they are memoring the the critical bits of information that they just need to learn obviously a lot of chemistry is problem solving but students can't afford to get the formula of sodium chloride incorrect in an exam, for example. So we do a lot of factual recall and exactly that, a 10 minute quiz with instant feedback is just as valuable as a two hour sort of double lesson test. So it's a, it's a mixed economy that leads to success in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm going to ask you something slightly um, uh, off the science, but kind of obviously still linked to Eton. It's obviously been a lot of, um, um, uh, I suppose publicity about Eton deciding to open sick forms in areas um, where the educational opportunities perhaps aren't as great as they could be. Um, how is that project going, and um, what's the big vision for that? Is it like a certain number of schools? Is it? Um, do you know any, anything in terms of details about that? Yeah, so this is a, a collaborative project with Star Academies, and the intention is to open three academic sick form colleges in Dudley, Middlesbrough and Oldham, and they're, they're for post-16 students, so post-16 study, so A-levels forward, and they're designed to give young people who've done really well in their GCSEs the opportunity to achieve the, the A-level grades that they're going to need to, to attend the, the top universities. The, I mean, the bit that it's still a work in progress, and as you'll appreciate if you've seen the news, there's a lot of turmoil in Parliament currently, so that will probably slow down a lot of the projects but the idea is that star academies will run the schools and they will set up the curriculum so Eton won't necessarily drive the curriculum per se but what Eton will be involved in is the academic enrichment outside of the defined curriculum so providing opportunities for uh, guest speakers visiting speakers lecture series so academic enrichment outside of the defined parameters of a-level chemistry per se that's where that's where the school will be that's where this school will be offering offering the support I think I'd say it quite loudly that the intention is not that 
these schools are being set up because we think that Eton is a better school than any other school. And, and we're in no way saying that we know how to teach better than other teachers within, within the field of, of education. That's, that's not the intention. The intention here is to get the right people in the right place and offer them the right support and give them the opportunities to, to stretch and, and challenge those students. Brilliant. Thanks for, for telling us about that innovative project. Um, I was going to also ask, um, not related to that, but a more, I suppose, more of a sciencey question, I guess, which is um, in terms of popularity, because you're talking a bit about um, possibly the effects maybe single sex uh, schools might have on kind of choices within um, uh, schools. What is the popularity like in terms of the sciences just generally? Because nationally, uh, you know, it goes biology, chemistry, then, then physics. Um, is that the kind of picture you get in in uh, in your school as well? Yeah, so huh, ours goes in the direct opposite. So physics is the most popular science, chemistry is popular, and then biology is the smallest of the three in terms of numbers at A level. But numbers are numbers are healthy. We have a slightly interesting system in terms of GCSE. We don't run the dual award qualification, so all of our students study all three sciences in year nine, but then when they enter years 10 and 11, they have to take at least two of the three separate award sciences. So some students will drop a science, and that's not because they're dropping down the number of GCSEs they're doing. That's because they're allowing space in the curriculum to allow them to do other subjects such as Greek and Latin. And there'll be some students who are very keen to study two modern languages and Greek and Latin and therefore they might not do GCSE chemistry but they will do GCSE physics and GCSE biology so so that's where we're at with that but yeah science numbers are growing but we are a school and we're, we're a school with a very long history but we're a school where science is a relative and I say this but science is a relatively modern addition to the curriculum at Eton College in terms of if you think when the school was founded, the school was founded to copy out passages and, and the King's scholars would be writing out Bible passages rather than learning about covalent bonding. So science has only been at Eton for the last 200 years, and that sounds like a long time. But for a school that's been around for over 600 years, it's a, a short period of its history. So if you look at the national picture in terms of the popularity of A-level science, I would say we're about on average. I think that we could be ahead. Um, we should be ahead in terms of where we're going. And that's probably one of my longer term projects is to to increase the, the popularity of science and increase the number of boys that are studying science up to A-level. As, as you know, when one looks at the employment market, students who are coming out with science and science-based qualifications are leading into some of the most employed students when they when they leave university so so we want to tap into that more but it's at an institution of this size and of this heritage one can lean on the tiller it doesn't necessarily mean that the the boat is going to go in a different direction uh, overnight okay but still kind of um obviously still popular and they say stem careers are quite rightly right so i suppose perceived as being um uh to give up good opportunities later in terms of the kind of uh, jobs you can apply for and, and you know the, the um 
I guess uh, the the high wages, I guess, in STEM, we, we can't avoid the fact that that is the case. There's often some good wages you can get from working for uh, uh, one of those fields, uh, whether it be engineering or medicine or, or, or any of those uh, technical careers. Now, I was going to ask, um, lost my train of thought there. Oh, no, I was going to go into I was going to move on to um, some questions about uh, the pandemic. Now, actually, when I record this, uh, the pandemic is definitely, maybe it's maybe it's officially over, but uh, in my house, uh, my son's now got COVID again, um, and uh, my kids have had it twice, I think. I've had it before. Um, but I was interested to know about your experience in, in a boarding school, because I was thinking about actually the practicalities of what happened um, when lockdown was first announced. And obviously, you've got lots of children living in, at the school. Um, how did that work out? Did they have to get sent home? What was the what was the big change in those first couple of months, which everyone didn't quite know what was going on, really? Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like an age ago now. But wow, what, what an experience. It was my first year at this school. And all of a sudden, we were going through something that the school had never done. Um, and it's quite staggering to think that the pandemic closed our school. And this is a school that was open through both world wars. And to think that the pandemic closed the school and more than once, of course, because we had multiple lockdowns. It was an interesting time. Actually, when I look back, we actually had to send our students home before the government announced that they were closing schools in general. And the reason for that was, if you remember way back at the start, people were told to self-isolate if they had any new continuous cough. And in a school where you've got 50 students being looked after by one housemaster and their pastoral support team, it only takes a couple of people who are forced into self-isolation and all of a sudden you've got 50 students that can't be looked after. So we very quickly, back in March 2020, reached a point of the, where the critical mass of boarding house staff were being told that they had to self-isolate because they had potential coronavirus symptoms, that actually we sent our students home, I think, on the 20th of March, and the government announced that schools were closing on the 23rd. Um, so that was about the time frame. But then, if you remember back to March 2020, when all schools closed, we actually did a couple of days of learning online, and then we broke for our Easter holidays, but we were open in a virtual sense for the whole of the summer term of 2020. So we carried on teaching our students remotely uh, to, to keep them engaged. And we actually did, I think what I can say is we definitely did a lot of teaching. I'm not sure I could say how much learning went on when the students weren't in front of us when they were away in front of their laptops. We definitely covered material, but we definitely found when we got back to the classroom in person that although the material had been covered, it didn't necessarily meant it had been learnt and understood. So that's been, I think that probably rolls into what we're going next in terms of the conversation. But that's what we've been doing in the last 12 months since we've been in some form of frame of normality in terms of the school being open. The, the last academic year is the, the first one since the 18-19 academic year that we've been open for the whole year. And it's been getting students re-engaged with the material and, and actually recovering material that was done when the school was closed. Because like I say, because although we taught it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've learned it. Yes, what is, what is taught, what is taught is not is not what is learned. <laughs> it's always the case, isn't it? Um, so thinking about obviously disruption, I kind of I've, I've got obviously it was a stressful and uh, 
a disconcerting time. But I think of any kind of disruption in people's lives in some sense, as long as it's not fatal, or, um, that you learn something from that and you probably take something on or you start new behaviours that you wouldn't have started if that thing hadn't have happened. So in terms of kind of teaching and learning, was there anything that kind of, because of the pandemic, forced you know the department to do things in a different way that you've kept inside well that's actually a really good way of approaching things and we should continue doing that so any things that come to mind that you are doing now as, as a result of perhaps or doing more of those behaviors than you were before the pandemic which you think has had a, a beneficial effect on kind of teaching and learning and or maybe just the way the department runs yeah definitely there's a lot we, we took a lot of learning points from from the pandemic and and I think there's some irony in the in the next statement that I'm going to make. And the irony is that although the pandemic forced people apart physically, we didn't see people physically, it actually brought out a lot of people's best sides in terms of collaborative work, because all of a sudden we were dumped in a new unknown situation where new, nobody knew what was what was happening and, and what was the best way to solve this problem. Within my department, the individual teachers have a huge amount of autonomy. And by that, I mean that there's not, I don't have a prescribed scheme of work in terms of week one, lesson one, you will teach this and you will do this practical and you need to reach this, you need to reach this standing post by the end of week three and so on and so forth. My The heads of department, the head of chemistry, physics and biology, they lay out milestones that they want all of the students to have reached but they're on the basis of a whole term rather than a week by week breakdown now with everybody being sent away and having to go and learn online actually what we ended up doing was a lot more collaborative work because we needed to prepare a whole new setup whereby we were teaching students remotely so i think if the positives to be brought out of the whole event it was that we actually worked together more than we normally do to prepare a set of centralised resources that everybody was able to use to ensure that we're having a, a consistent delivery and a consistent approach. And that also helped reduce people's workload because rather than having 33 teachers replicate the same piece of work 33 times, we were able to share things between each other, which is something that we hadn't been so great at in the past. And the use of Microsoft Teams and, and the OneNote platform would really, really help that. It also sent some people up a very steep learning curve in terms of the use of technology. Some colleagues who had been very much traditional uh, chalk and talk at the the front of the classroom were all of a sudden having to deliver their teaching through the medium of the iPad. And I think they learned quite quickly that delivering a lecture via the medium of Zoom doesn't necessarily mean that you'll keep everybody engaged. Whilst it can be engaging in person, it's a lot more difficult. And we see adults doing this. I'm guilty of it myself. You go to online meetings and you try and do everything else whilst you're also engaging in a meeting. So I think that's a big part of of the learning curve that we went up. But we were fortunate in the point that we'd deployed a lot of new technology just before the, the close down happened. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if we were trying to do this 10 years ago when it would have, the only tool we really would have had in our armory would have been email. And most students would have had access to a computer, but not all. So I think that's where we were very fortunate. Thinking about the uh, the way science curriculums change over the years, is there anything you'd like to see in maybe 10, 20 years, uh, things changing in, in, the, in maybe what we've taught or how we assess 
um, students in the future to perhaps give them skills uh, for the future or more, more, more relevant skills? Anything you think we should be looking at in science education generally um, uh, over the next, as I said, 20 years or so? I'm actually a, a, quite a big fan of the move away from the, the modular system. I'm talking at A-level here, at GCSE and at A-level. Yeah. When I first started teaching with sort of A-level chemistry, for example, by the time you got to the end of the qualification, some students would have had four attempts at one module of, of the qualification, which, which I think is good and they get a good grade by the end of it. But part of the challenge, the challenging aspect of education is that you get one attempt to show that you've, you've learned something and that you've, you've developed the skills. I must be, I'll be brutally honest and say I'm not the biggest fan of the controlled practical assessments. I understand what the model is trying to do in principle, that it's trying to get more students to do more practical work and to ensure that schools are actually delivering the practical work. But I also thought there was mileage in, in some of the challenges of having a, a practical skills exam. I don't necessarily think that the students take on board everything that they should do from the from the CPACs and the, and the controlled practicals that they would would actually do just as well in preparing for for an examined practical. But that's a personal opinion there. I think in terms of the way that it's going, I've been pleased to see and I do believe that the A-levels are becoming more challenging. I think that's the right thing. I also would like to see a bit more of a normalisation in terms of the distribution of grades. I think that people need to rebase their opinions in terms of thinking that anything apart from an A or an A star is not a good grade. Now, a C grade at A level is a good grade. You've shown a good level of understanding and you've learned a certain amount of material. So I do think in terms of education, I would like to see a readdressing of, of the value of grades. And rather than adding more grades at the top, actually rebasing and saying a C is a good grade above that is very well done rather than I have students that say oh well if I get a B I failed well you haven't you've achieved a huge amount so just to finish off with I just wondered because there is there are are so many online resources and things like Twitter for example is very big for education at the moment um to share ideas, people sharing Google Drives, et cetera, um, and what they've been doing in their classroom. Are there any particular people you find useful for chemistry that you kind of follow or you keep an eye on what they're up to that is outside your own department? I've been round and round the houses on this in terms of there's there's lots of great stuff online uh, in terms of people are trying different things. And there's, I mean, one thing that I've been trying relatively recently is this, the nature of, uh, we call it slow practicals. Oh, yes. Yeah. Rather than uh, handing out a list of instructions and just saying, right, there's all the equipment, carry on. Mm. You actually go through it in a much more methodical and slow approach. And this has been really successful with some of my year 10 students. One of the most challenging practicals I think we do at school is actually a titration. And if you're a year, a year 10 student, the first time you ever do a titration, it's phenomenally confusing. Yeah. And it doesn't really make any sense. So if, when I first started teaching titrations, I'd just go, there's all the equipment, yeah, follow the instructions and carry on. And then I'd get annoyed when they couldn't do it. And actually, I've been taking on board that methodology, the idea of the slow practical, so going through it. And it doesn't take any longer, but the students actually see every step, you demonstrate every step, then you say, right, now you'd go and do that. And it overlaps very much with um, some of the teaching I do in the in the cadet forces in terms of they use a model called EDIT, which is explain, demonstrate, improvise, practice. 
And actually that does work quite effectively when you're trying to teach practical skills. You explain what's going on, you demonstrate it, then you get the students to improvise and then you get them to practice. So I think that's something that's changed and that's something that I picked up from the Twitter sphere, as it were. There's a huge amount of chemistry and science material on YouTube. You're absolutely right. Um, some old stock favourites. There's a, there's a chap called uh, Macem Guy, and it's a, a portmanteau of the fact that he's a, a Macem, so he's from Sunderland, and he's a chemist, and he does some fantastic videos just explaining uh, the chemistry and, and does some walkthrough talkthroughs of, of OCR A-level chemistry questions, and I, he's my sort of go-to reference if the students are struggling on a certain topic and they just want to watch through some stuff. Um, but I'm not a, I don't tweet necessarily, uh, and I'm not massively into my Twitter. So uh, I pick up bits and pieces, but that's not necessarily my big, uh, one of my big fortes. Interesting, well, there's a lot, a lot out there, isn't there? So um, I'm gonna ask you my, my final silly question, uh, but I felt I had to ask it. Um, uh, in the summer term, I'm assuming at Eton, you do have Eton mess. Can you confirm or deny that, uh, Dan? Yes, it, it is on the menu. It's not on the menu every day. Um, oh, no. We do have it, yeah. We definitely oh, that's, that's good, good to hear. Well, it's been so nice to chat to you, Dan, and hopefully you're uh, in a good mood uh, because I'm sure you're always in a good mood, but obviously the summer holidays approach. Hopefully you're, you're doing something nice. So thanks so much for, for joining me and getting to hear your view from the lab. Thanks, Dan. No, thank you, Andy, and thanks for the invitation. It's been good fun. Well, there you have it. Another podcast done and dusted and delivered directly into your ear canals. I hope you enjoyed it. Have you got any suggestions for future guests on the pod? Who would you like to hear from? Feel free to barge into my inbox at any time. My email is andy.woods at pearson.com. You can guarantee a reply, I promise. Well, that's it for me today. Thanks for coming and I'll join you on the next one.